From Given, this is Purposing, the podcast that lifts the lid on how to run a truly purpose-driven business. I'm Becky Willen, and with the help of leaders from some of the world's most recognized brands, I'll be demystifying this often misunderstood topic into clear, actionable advice you can use in your own business. This week, I'm joined by Amanda McKenzie, OBE. A marketer by trade, Amanda held senior commercial roles at British Gas, BT and Aviva before taking on the huge challenge of helping launch the UN Global Girls to the world. A CEO of Business in the Community and a non-exec at Lloyds Banking Group, she's a leading voice in the movement for purpose-driven businesses. Through this conversation, you'll learn to make the case for deeper, more purposeful collaboration, set things up to make a difference and take the first steps and ensure you create real impact, not simply noise. Before I speak with Amanda, let's take a quick look back at her career to learn how she became responsible for running the largest and longest established membership organisation dedicated to responsible business. In her current job, Amanda is tasked by the Prince of Wales to inspire businesses to play a bigger role in communities across the UK. But despite the work she does now, Amanda wasn't always so certain of her own purpose. You know, there's that weird phrase, uh, know yourself. I think it's such an easy thing to say and it's a really hard thing to do. I think you have to be quite brutal about getting other people because they're getting this objective view of you. They know you. My rather fabulous boss at the time, a guy called Mark Wilson, said to me, well, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And I, and I was like, God, that's a grown-up question. And I went, well, some sort of public service, I said. So I think it had just been brewing. So I, I guess arguably that question was the Damascene moment, but it was the question and it wasn't mine. For 20 years, she built an impressive resume working for some of the UK's most prestigious businesses. While working at Aviva, Amanda was given the opportunity to take a secondment with Project Everyone and the chance to work with one of Britain's most high-profile philanthropists. Richard Curtis is a rather brilliant film producer, but then subsequently become a campaigner. He was founder of Comic Relief. He's just an all-round extraordinary creative campaigning activist. That was an extraordinary time, as you can imagine, an extraordinary thing to do. I was very fortunate to get to do it. And then clearly came the time when I potentially would have thought about going back to Aviva and I realised I couldn't. I had to spend more of my time doing more of the things I've been doing the past few years. And Business in the Community came along and, and then we have it. So it did sort of creep up on me. Through her work with business in the community, Amanda has positively impacted the lives of thousands of people. The story of one person and the impact of the Ban the Box campaign has always stayed with her. Basically, we ask employers to take off the box on the front page of a job application that said, uh, do you have a criminal record? We're not saying don't ask it, but just ask it further down the process. Don't judge someone by the worst thing they've ever done. And rather magnificently, we've now got a million roles that are permanent for whom that is the case. The Prince of Wales helped us start this. And at my first AGM, he was there and we wanted to have someone to say thank you and just describe what this had meant to him. He was clearly very nervous and frankly, so was I. But I sort of said to him, please, your story is incredible. Just speak from your heart. I watched grown men cry, literally tears running down their cheeks, as this person explained what it had meant to them, and that they then had a passport, and they travelled, and they had a home, and they were building a life from a moment in their life which was clearly very dark, and where they couldn't see anything. It was a great way to drive one's conviction for what you were doing into the future. So Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. 
can we start by setting the scene for us? Why do we need more businesses to collaborate more frequently, more effectively, and with different kinds of stakeholders to solve the problems of people and the planet? Well, quite simply, because we haven't time not to. I always used to love that old flash advert, you know, we've done the hard work so you don't have to. You think about it, there's lots and lots of companies out there who are learning things that if we could only share them, learn from each other's mistakes, we can move faster. And on the basis that you have to assume solving the climate challenge is not a competitive sport, I certainly don't think it should be. Why wouldn't you be willing to do that? Obviously, there's no one size fits all approach to this, but are there certain types of challenges, businesses or or circumstances where you're seeing real appetite and potential for sort of deeper, more purposeful collaboration in the work that you're doing through business in the community? Most definitely. We're very lucky, though, because I think the essence of why you're part of business in the community is that you like sharing, you like collaborating, you want to learn from others, you want to be curious, and you want to share your leadership stories, if you like, in that same context, too. So really thinking about that and being mindful that probably the default of maybe the culture of where you come from is not necessarily to do that. The first thing you've got to do is go, what am I willing to give up? Which is not, is not a natural question. People think collaborating is, oh, we'll sit together. It'll all be great, but I won't change a thing. The fundamental is, what are you willing to give up? And are you willing to give it up straight away? Because that demonstrates your intent. It demonstrates your wholeheartedness. I think that's really interesting. You've touched a bit on, I guess, why businesses find collaboration hard in the work that you're doing, you're also bringing businesses together with not-for-profits and the public sector. So help people in businesses understand a bit about, I guess, the challenges from the other side. So what are the challenges that non-profits and the public sector organisations face when they're collaborating with businesses? I mean, there's nothing like, by the way, getting businesses together with not-for-profit or other types of organisations, be it social enterprise. Then it becomes empirical, then it becomes real, then people see the problems and everyone, I think fundamentally most people want to help. We've just done a round of uh, Seeing is Believing visits. It's one of our flagship programmes where we take some business leaders into a place or really examine an issue. One of the places was a social supermarket and the lady there said, look, you know, we cook lunch for 100, three rings and a baked potato oven and we cook for 100 people. And in that moment, every business leader in the room went, well, we can just solve that. That's really easy. But the other thing that came out, in fact, from all of the four SIPs was how much effort and time is going in to writing foundation applications. You've got these people who are already stretched doing remarkable things with basically no resources. But the minute the business leaders heard that this was happening, we had to immediately go, I'm going to make a commitment now that that will never have to happen again. We will provide the resources to help you do that. We'll also look at how you can streamline it. So I think once you put people together and they learn from each other and they hear those stories, it becomes empirical. Suddenly everyone wants to shift and move together. You have touched on something there because I think a lot of companies that are already working with business in the community and those who aren't have pretty well established partnerships with individual charities and it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on how the work that you're doing is different in terms of evolving that approach to collaboration and I guess within that context do you need to convince businesses to embrace a sort of more progressive open approach to collaborating with organisations where compared to previous 
efforts where there was a lot of brand benefits that came from working with a single organization versus being part of more of a sort of coalition of organizations and what are some of the sort of questions or or conversations that come up um, when you're talking to businesses around that particular challenge? I think people are going to get used to having a a multi-sector approach to these conversations So in the past, you might have thought, well, it's one company and it's quite sort of binary meets with one charity partner or local government or whatever, sort of singly. But the minute you put a group of businesses, but with a shared endeavour together, multi-sector, I think it becomes much more interesting. And I think everyone then suddenly realises they can genuinely benefit from each other. We had a, a round table a couple of years ago. The stat that moved us was that 84 million uniforms a year go into landfill. Why? Because they're probably not of amazing quality. They're made of stuff that isn't recyclable. They do get worn out, therefore, quicker, etc. But you put together people that produce the uniforms, people that need the uniforms from, you know, retailers and the recyclers. So you put a unique group of people together and everyone steps up. After that, there was a real commitment to try and say, right, well, we're going to try and divert all uniforms from landfill. We're going to find a way to recycle them. But importantly, we're going to make them greener in the very first place kind of thing and really challenge, do our industrial shoes need to be made of X? So it's all of those things, that, but they do come from when you put people together. And at first, it perhaps seems like a chore, but I think increasingly people are, are having to look at that. And I think that's what's really powerful about this is that I think it shows how much more deeply organisations can engage around big issues and actually work together to solve challenges in a way that can be quite different, I think, from those traditional corporate charity partnerships, which might be more transactional, they might be more sort of surface level. Actually, you know, if you're talking about changing products, processes, supply chains, that is deep, meaningful work that really needs to happen we need to see more of but I think the idea that that is more likely to happen through collaboration through bringing the right people together in a room I think is a really interesting one. Yes it's slightly more on the commercial side in some ways but I don't think it started off that way the rather brilliant Peter Simpson at Anglian Water they produce a lot of heat from the their processors they then built something like a seven acre basically greenhouse to capture the heat and therefore run, it could run the greenhouse effectively. They've created jobs, they've created effectively new jobs, and they're growing, I think, 5% of the country's tomatoes. So on every front, it's capturing energy that otherwise would have gone into the atmosphere. It's reusing, it's, it's taking carbon out of that whole, the whole supply chain for tomatoes. It's just so clever to have thought about that, but that feels quite a long, long way away from opening your tap and getting clean water out of it. But it's just really thoughtful, in the round, proper circular economy, collaborative thinking. Yeah, that absolutely uses the capabilities of the organisation, the assets of the organisation in a fundamentally different way. Really powerful. So, as I mentioned, the, the pandemic created, I think, a new mandate for real purposeful collaboration in so many ways and business in the community's business response network I think was a fantastic example of that in action so it'd be great to understand a bit more about how that came about what happened and what you learned from it. Oh thank you I have to say we were quite proud of the National Business Response Network but I'm also 
profoundly grateful for those organisations that stepped up and funded us. We didn't have a business case. We had a notional idea of what we thought we could achieve, but people understood that and bought into it. I remember having a conversation with the uh, ABI. Who's the ABI, Amanda? Oh, sorry, the Association of British Insurers. And they went, you really are going to leverage the power of business, aren't you, right now? And I went, that's exactly what we're hoping to do. And so when people did that, we didn't have to fill in very, very lengthy forms. Obviously, there had to be a notional, what's the impact we're going after and what do we hope to achieve, of course. But it wasn't days long because no one had the time. So if everybody recalls back just as lockdown was starting, lots of businesses were giving things, be it time or money, very deliberately, or product. And then even individuals, individual CEOs were giving up salaries. There were all sorts of magnificent gestures, but there was a risk. Well, we were certainly picking up that because we've got quite a good community footprint that some of those things weren't getting effectively to the front line. So the community need wasn't necessarily being answered. One of my favourite examples, suddenly thought, I wonder what's going to happen to all those airline meals that are frozen. Obviously, they're going to go to waste. So uh, Ripple Dissolve, airline meal meets Hertz refrigerated lorry fleet, meets Iceland massive freezers of which they gave plenty, meets fair share. So again, we had partnerships effectively, either through membership or through our community work with fair share. Wow, it's really, it's amazing. And, and so what did the biggest takeaways what are the biggest learnings from you that you think can be applied in hopefully what's now a sort of post-pandemic world well funnily enough I think it's not a dissimilar takeaway that I would have had from Project Everyone which uh, we might touch on at some point which is never say never we were facing into knowing what we wanted to do but we knew we needed to raise quite a lot of money in not a lot of time If you have something that is compelling and interesting and you can see how it can happen, and clearly we could not have done the National Business Response Network had we not done everything we'd done for the previous 38 years or or whatever. So we managed to raise the money. We then got these supply chains done, but it was the most extraordinary amount of conviction and passion from my lovely team at BITC uh, to make this happen. So that unbelievable determination, obviously you can't do it without the funding. And then where you started with this conversation is having extremely good partnerships and good collaborations and being willing as well slightly to let a thousand flowers bloom. Because I think if you'd process engineered this, there was a million reasons why you might not have done it. Yeah, absolutely. And so you talk about the dangers, I guess, of over-engineering or relying too much on process to get this kind of a collaboration happening. But are there specific building blocks or kind of key steps that you think are really important if organisations are looking to to co-create collaborative solutions that genuinely meet the needs of a community or or solve a, a real environmental challenge? And if there are, what that looks like? We have a very good one-pager on what it takes to go into a place and collaborate. So I won't religiously go through that because we can we can make it available uh, to anybody who, who might want it. But if I give you Blackpool as a, a mini case history, that started with the most extraordinary passion and conviction of Christine Hodgson, who then chaired our Pride of Place work in Blackpool. She said, you know, the life chances of a working class boy in Blackpool are terrible. We used to do work in Blackpool. We should go back. That kicks it off. There has to be a belief from someone, a bit of grit somewhere of something that's wrong that needs sorting. But then you have to go, OK, so what do we know what's worked in the past? And about, oh, gosh, probably nine years ago now, maybe 10 
Business and Community launched a programme called Business Connectors. Clue in the name, there was a person that went into a place and their job was to absolutely link together the local business, the local government, potentially national government as necessary, and all the not-for-profits or charities in that place. And their job was to really understand what's the community need and how could business help tackle it. There were some really big system things that needed help in Blackpool. And how did we know that? Well, because the local council were going, we've got a real problem with housing. They kind of knew what the problem was. The local community knew what the problem was. So I think that's the second thing, is the community, in its broadest definition, knows, absolutely knows what the thing, what what needs solving. The question is, they might not necessarily know either how to solve it or what is the right solution. We were very lucky to have Baroness Jo Valentine, who was the Chief Executive London First. She said to us, I want to do something, I want to do three days a week on the ground, I want to do something incredibly tangible. And it's like, wow, fantastic. But you know, the Baroness of Putney turns up in Blackpool, that, that could be that could be kind of, you know, I'm from head office here to help, that might not feel great. She's clearly the least pompous person you'll ever meet, and that's, you know, but we just didn't know. So, so we got the local council to interview Joe and say, is there some work to be done together? Do you, are you going to get on? Because if you're not, we'll find someone else. But you have to be comfy that you, that you can work together. So that's the third thing. You've got to find a key person that I think can lead the efforts who everyone buys into. But Ripple Dissolve now, the town has got a phenomenal plan. It's got quite a lot of funding, about, I think, uh, 700 million and, and possibly a site of another billion. Clearly, it's not all about money, but you can't do a lot of the changes that they need to change and really get after the housing stock, which is a major problem there. So I use that as a very long example, and I hope it wasn't too long. But just to say, it, this is multi-year programmes. You know, the notion of levelling up as if it could happen in two and a half years is just not going to happen. Yeah, no, it's a really powerful example. And just a, a couple of practical things I wanted to dive into in a bit more detail. So you talked about the community knowing, you know, what's needed. In really practical terms, how do you bring in the voices of the community into this sort of programme? And how do you make sure that it's a truly inclusive approach where particularly the most you know, marginalised groups of people have the opportunity to contribute to the conversation? Well, you're always going to have organisations that are in touch with people that are most marginalised in the community, be it social enterprises, not-for-profit charities. So you're always going to be able to understand what are those needs or what are the needs that are not being met or what are the issues, where is, is their community failing them, if you like. So you've always got that. Your local businesses, and they tend to be the SMEs, are absolutely in touch with what needs to happen and usually unbelievably dedicated to the place and quite feisty about what needs to happen. And often when we've done seeing is believing, people will go, I hate the phrase, we're hard to reach, because actually we're very easy to reach, thanks, but you need to listen. Business can be a highly, or should be a competitive environment. And I think sometimes the drive for competition can be more powerful or felt more strongly than the drive for collaboration. And so I wondered if you'd ever managed to get arch rivals collaborating and if that happened, how that happened. A fantastic example, actually, is what Dave Lewis has done on food waste. So he's done some tremendous work there because all, all the retailers benefit, but society benefits. So he's done some tremendous work there. And he's the CEO of Tesco. He was, yeah. yes, he was yeah. the CEO yeah. of Tesco. But the work that he's done, which we've 
helped in a teeny tiny way on actually, but really important. I mean, clearly, of course, what happens as well, if you think about financial services or anything, everyone's kind of very worried about the Competition and Markets Authority. And, you know, if we're all coming together, are we about to do some a terrible collusion? But clearly in this space, that's not the case. But if you think about even the net zero banking alliance targets, everyone is collectively creating targets. More and more sectors are together doing this. So the Prince of Wales Sustainable Markets Initiative, which is a global initiative, which is pulling together at a sectoral level, how can we decarbonise that particular sector? I think that's the ultimate example of it. But again, as I sort of touched on with the uniforms example, you can bring competitors together against something that is absolutely part of the supply chain. It's not a is a McDonald's burger better than a Burger King burger or vice versa? It was about the uniforms. There is no competition in uniforms, surely. So I think that's the point as well. It's the actual topics that are going to be so fundamental if we crack a lot of this to tackling some of the things we need to. You've just talked about the ways in which businesses might change supply chains, design different products and services as a result of these really sort of powerful, impactful collaborations. They can really change the way that a business operates. And clearly that requires buy-in from the top. You know, you can't change these systems and processes without the support of you know the most senior execs within an organization you've talked a little bit about the seeing is believing program but it would be great to understand a bit more about how you involve leadership teams in really meaningful ways so that you get that buy-in for what can be probably some quite big commercial questions at some point well i think it all i think you have to have leadership that is committed to this And sometimes it happens that you might work with um, an HRD and they are so committed to it and their enthusiasm and and passion is so infectious that they, you know, on the back of that, we might go and talk to a, a leadership team. But on the whole, it tends to be the ultimate CEO has to be thoughtful and mindful and committed in one way or another, or, or indeed the chairman. Then on the back of that, we'll either talk to the whole executive at once then you've got this extraordinary array of people on massively different levels of either acceptance or knowledge or willingness. Actually, I suspect most people are willing, but often they don't know how. So it's very hard, you know, that some of the trade-offs that people have to make or are going to have to make to achieve net zero are quite tricky. And that this is un- uncharted territory. The CEO that creates the environment where that's OK means that you can then start to have those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And and so you talked about the work in Blackpool being a, a multi-year program of, of activity. And I think that kind of systemic change is, is hard. It takes a long time. And so businesses are serious about collaborating in a way that contributes to solving those sort of systemic challenges. What do they need to know about what's really involved in getting it right? Well, I think the fundamental is that they're unlikely to see any significant impact measures in three years. I think I would also ask them to say, you've got to create a programme that whoever your successor is will inherit this and take it on. So don't come into this thinking it's a one or two year funding because it's just not fair. 
it's not fair on the organisation or on the place or on the charity partner, whoever. I would therefore make sure that the board, depending on the nature of it and the scale of it, uh, have bought into the long term principle of it. And you and then you somehow get a notional, we're going to do this for seven years, 10 years, whatever it is. So really think long term. And then beyond that, as best you can, be willing to personally commit to it, because I think that will also create a really good role modelling for the rest of the organisation. It shows that one, you mean it, um, it matters. Um, and I think that will sustain that beyond your tenure, because the reality is, you know, what's the average tenure of a CEO? Four or five years, uh, uh, if that sometimes. I think there are certain things you just have to go most of my colleagues or my successor is going to absolutely inherit this. So I have to leave, I have to make sure it's fit for that. And we're not just going to abandon it then. You've described some amazing examples from the National Business Response Network. These sort of collaborations can create amazing stories for businesses and, and for brands. Like I said, I wanted to ask you as a, as a marketer by background, what advice do you have for companies that want to shout about their role and the work that they're doing, especially when the effort could be at multiple different organisations? Don't be shy about doing it if it's genuine and true. <laughs> and you're not just picking one tiny thing and actually there's nothing behind it. So if it's a house of cards, please, please don't. Um, we're just super proud of everybody. So as best you can, you obviously try and always bring all those partners into the conversation and say, we're unbelievably grateful for, for what you've helped happen. I think that's the other thing is just always thank everyone else. <laughs> Because frankly, then they'll probably do it again as well. Yes, just be wholehearted about it. Oh gosh, it sounds so sort of, you know, Mary Poppins really. But it, it just is great ideas and things people just want to contribute to. Amanda, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure having you on Purposing. Thank you. Pleasure, thank you. Thanks again to Amanda. Lots of brilliant insight there. So here's a few things I've taken from the conversation. Approaching a truly purposeful collaboration means being prepared to give something up in the interest of shared goals. Having a negotiation strategy can help here. What are you prepared to give up? And what must you stay true to for the collaboration to work for your business? The best collaborations often start by being actively involved in the right conversations, which increases the likelihood of serendipitous encounters with potential partners. It's about being open-minded and genuinely listening for potential. You can't be in every conversation about every challenge. So get clear about the issues and places that are most important. Leadership engagement is essential to unlock the full potential of purposeful collaboration. And the best way to create real engagement is to make it personal and create powerful, immersive experiences connected to the challenge you're trying to solve. They help leaders build conviction and belief. If you'd like more practical advice on building a purpose-driven business with brilliant insights from people like Amanda, Download the Insider's Guide to Purpose at givenagency.com forward slash insider's guide.